Welcome to House of David Ministries. I'm Pastor Eric Michael Teitelman. Join me as we learn about the rich heritage of our Christian faith. In each episode, we explore a unique topic that will deepen your knowledge of Christ and who we are as His people. In this episode, we will explore Jewish mysticism and how the rabbis can help us understand what is God's will for humanity and His creation. I often hear Christians talk about following the will of God over the will of men. Sometimes I feel like I'm in a wrestling match with God. I say things like, I want to buy that new sports car. And God says, no, you can't have it. In this context, God's will appears arbitrary and maybe even selfishly motivated. Is this really what constitutes the will of God? I don't think so. In the Lord's Prayer, we read in Matthew chapter 6, Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And so now we begin to see that God's will directly correlates with his kingdom, which is the whole of creation. So he has a much bigger picture than we do. But what exactly is God's will on earth as it is presently in heaven? Let's find out. I'm going to begin this teaching from a Jewish mystical viewpoint called Kabbalah. Now, don't stress out, Kabbalah is nothing more than the collected thoughts of our sages. They're just feeble men that were curiously exploring the unsearchable God. The essence of their imagination is awe and wonder of Yahweh, the place where that which we know touches the infinite and the unknown. And our objective is to explore these mysteries and correlate them with Christ and His Church, which are God's secrets that are now revealed. Kabbalah comes from the root to receive, and it stresses that one may not rely on one's wisdom, but only that which is received. Kabbalah is heavy in symbolism and associations, and each idea can be interpreted and associated in many ways. Now, there is a lot that I do not agree with but I have also discovered prophetic gems of wisdom buried in the text. And these, I believe, have been imparted to the sages by the Spirit of the Lord because we know that God's gifts are irrevocable. And it takes careful discernment to utilize the associative process of comparing the rabbinic text with Scripture. And so I don't recommend people openly study Kabbalah on their own. But my interest here is to use some of these associations to help us better understand the spiritual realm always being careful to reference Scripture. When used properly, Kabbalah can activate the imagination and human intellect, and it is intended to create a feeling of unity by showing how everything within the universe is related to the physical and the spiritual laws of creation. And through the depth of revelation, the world seems truly one and rather small. In Kabbalah, we learn about the ten attributes of God. Now, these are somewhat different from the seven spirits of God that are mentioned in Isaiah chapter 11 and Revelation chapter 3. Seven is a number of completion and is associated with this present world, meaning the seven days of creation. Eight is a number of transcendence, meaning beyond this creation. But ten, signified by the Hebrew letter Yud, and which also means hand, yad, is associated with the hand of God. 
We read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, a mighty yad. In Hebrew, the attributes of God are called sephirot and are said to represent the fingers of God in a metaphorical sense. And an attribute is a quality or characteristic ascribed to God. For example, God is kind. This characteristic is associated with the attribute of kindness called sephira chesed. All the fingers together make up the hand, and the hand without the fingers is incomplete. The ten sephirot are divided into three upper attributes that are collectively referred to as the head, and seven lower ones which in a spiritual sense would represent the body. There are several theories offered as to the meaning of the word sephirah. One suggests it is correlated with the Hebrew root of the word sephor, which means number. Sephor is also closely related to the word sefer, which means book. Another possible relationship is to the Hebrew word sapir, which also implies sapphire or gem. But for now, this word remains a mystery. These ten attributes are more than abstracts. They are spiritual emanations of God's infinite light called the ensof. So for this reason, these emanations have no physical properties as God is spirit. They also have what is called a dual nature, as both vessels, meaning they are conduits of God's light, called kelim, and they are the essence of God's light himself, called atzmut. The rabbis debate whether these emanations have any material substance. In other words, are these emanations the essence of God or merely a reflection of his light? We cannot know for sure. Either way, it is believed the essence or radiance of God's light flows through these vessels to reveal God's light to the creation. We also see other emanations within the creation in the form of speech and mathematics, for example. Hence, the sages declare the world was created with ten numbers and the twenty-two letters of the Hebrew alphabet. We read in Genesis chapter 1, it says, When God said, Let there be light, and there was light. The essence of God's light was then poured into the creation. This manifestation was both an emanation of God's speech, spoken in the Holy Hebrew language, and the appearance of the visible light of God to sustain the creation. Because the Bible tells us that God did not create the sun, the moon, and the stars until the fourth day. And so, before they were created, God's light sustained the creation. In thinking about the revelation of God to the creation, I believe that the most significant vessel of God's light and his radiance through which all creation came into existence is Christ, the Son of God. As we read in John chapter 1, it says, All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so therefore Yeshua is the hand of God, and his fingers are his attributes. I find it interesting to see how, in the words of the rabbis, God's duality of his vessel essence nature, revealed through his attributes, allows him to be multiple, yet one. In Christianity, we refer to this duality as the Trinity of God, three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal and co-eternal with each other. 
This is the great mystery of God's unity as nothing can exist apart from Him. And yet the universe does exist. Before God created the world, there was only God and His name, which is associated with His unknowable will. And interestingly, the Hebrew word name, Shemol, and will have the same numerical value. God's will is His first and holiest attribute and is called crown, keter in Hebrew. It is so intrinsic to His essential being that it is believed to have existed before the creation. However, at the creation, God revealed His divine attributes, which are His spiritual and physical laws, beginning with wisdom and understanding through which He would administer the world. Wisdom is both the beginning of creation and the source of the laws of nature. In other words, wisdom is the tool of God's will. It is known by the Hebrew word yesh, which means being. Being implies material, formative, or substantive. God created human beings from nothing. This gives meaning to the scripture in John chapter 1 where it says all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. All of God's attributes are one with him and are one complete unity in him. So in other words, God is the embodiment of his laws. God's laws exist because he is. This understanding of God's absolute and perfect unity gives revelation and understanding to the commandment in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The introduction of God's divine attributes to the creation also produced dichotomies. For example, strictness versus kindness, masculinity versus femininity, and freedom of choice versus God's sovereignty. Now, good and evil are not dichotomies, as God did not create evil. We know that God is good, and there is no darkness in Him. But these dichotomies that He created allowed for evil to exist and for the presence of sin. This dichotomy makes for choice, and without it, our decisions would be without moral responsibility. So therefore, God uses all for His glory both good and evil. As we read in Romans chapter 8, all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. God's will is also His unbound intelligence, which, when revealed to creation, is associated with His unrestrained and unlearned knowledge. In other words, God is the knowledge, He is the knower, and He is the known. There is nothing he does not know, and there is nothing that he must learn. All knowledge is united in his being, and with this knowledge, he knows every created thing. Just as we read in Jeremiah chapter 1, he says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. We also need to recognize the difference between God's infinite light of his unbound will, which is God's unknowable transcendence, compared with the limited light of his wisdom and understanding made known to creation, which is God's revealed imminence. As we read in Isaiah chapter 55, the Lord said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
The rabbis have strived for the knowledge of God, knowing they're doomed to fail. But I believe that we can know God's revealed will through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. Just as Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 16, For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. God's revelation is therefore for the purpose that we might know Him and His will. And knowing requires that we surrender and submit to His will, thereby accepting His knowledge and wisdom over ours. In this teaching, we focus on God's revealed or limited will, which you will see is also His written word of instruction, called the Torah. It is limited because we are finite created beings and not because God Himself has any limitations. This discussion raises an interesting question. Have you ever wondered why Jesus, who is God, had to learn it all? As we read in Luke chapter 2, it says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. I believe that Jesus had to learn because he's called the arm of God. Arm is zeroah in Hebrew. He's the arm of God revealed to the world. Just as we read in Isaiah chapter 52, it says, The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. In other words, God extended his arm into his creation, who is the Christ, Jesus, and the revelation of God's limited will and concealed light to the creation. Just as we read in Isaiah chapter 40, it says, Behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand, which is his yad, and his arm, Zeroah, shall rule for him. And because Jesus is the revelation of what is limited to a finite creation, God followed the order of his natural and spiritual laws to reveal himself to the creation. Thus, Jesus had to grow and increase in wisdom and stature to demonstrate to us how we must do the same. With this understanding, we will now continue with our mystical teaching. The rabbis tell us that God's emanating light travels downward from his crown, his keter, through his other attributes. In order from top to bottom, these nine other attributes are called wisdom, chachma, understanding, bina, kindness, which is chesed, courage, which is gevurah, glory, tefiret, eternity, netzach, beauty, which is hod, foundation, yisod, and lastly, kingdom, which is malchut. These nine attributes plus God's attribute of crown, keter, can be formed into the shape of a man in a metaphorical sense, as God is spirit and has no bodily form. The sages tell us that man was created in the shape of these attributes, namely, as we read in Genesis chapter 1, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So we will now begin our explanation from the lowest attributes, which are called the lowest world. The six lowest attributes, again, are courage, glory, eternity, beauty, foundation, and kingdom. And these are called the attributes of life. They are also called the six extremes. It is believed these attributes are associated with the six days of creation, represented by the Hebrew letter Vav, which is taken from the Tetragrammaton, which is the name of God. It has a numerical value of six and the number of man. 
The attribute of kingdom, malchut, is the lowest of the six attributes and is believed to be correlated with God's purposed descent of his kingdom into the world of creation. Just as we read in Matthew chapter 6, it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the Lord said in Isaiah chapter 66, Heaven is my throne, my crown, my keter, and earth is my footstool, my kingdom, my malchut. What house, what foundation will you build for me? Malchut is also thought to represent the Shekinah glory of God, which is believed to be the abiding presence of God in the creation. The Shekinah, or Shekinah, is correlated with the Sabbath, the Shabbat, and also the lower Garden of Eden, Gan Eden. Just as we read in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For he who has entered his rest, his Shabbat, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, which is God's kingdom, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Now the top three and highest attributes, which are crown, wisdom, and understanding, are correlated in a metaphorical sense with the head of God. They are thought to be associated with reason and the spirit of counsel. Just as we read in Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord said, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. We've already talked about God's attribute of crown, keta, and explained that this is his unbound will. And below the crown is God's second attribute of wisdom called chachma. Wisdom is referred to as primal unformed thought, meaning it is matter without form. So therefore, wisdom represents the beginning of thought. And the completion of a thought is the third attribute, which is called understanding, bina. There's a Jewish tradition that there are 50 gates of understanding in the world. And the number 50 is associated with this attribute and is called jubilee, or the yovel. It is also associated with repentance, teshuvah, from the Hebrew word return, because in the 50th year of the Jubilee, the Jewish people are to return to their ancestral lands of inheritance. So after the attribute of understanding, all that remains is for God's thought to be put into action. And this is referred to as his knowledge, his da'at, which adds God's will to perform an action from his thought that came through his wisdom. As we read in Proverbs chapter 3, The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. So in other words, God's knowledge is an outcome of God's wisdom and his understanding. It is not viewed as a separate attribute of God, but rather the emanation of his will in the lower world of creation. Therefore, knowledge is the embodiment of God's intelligence, which is comprised of his unbound will and his wisdom and his understanding. The middle attributes, the ones immediately below will, wisdom, and understanding, are referred to as the attributes of feeling. These are metaphorically comprised of the heart and the two arms of God. They are also considered extremes in a spiritual sense, with the heart being in the middle. In the New Testament, we read about this correlation or this contrast of God's kindness versus his strictness. Paul said in Romans chapter 11, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. 
And in John chapter 1, emphasis added, we read, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came down from heaven through Jesus Christ. And yet we know that Yeshua did not do away with the law of Moses. He came down to fulfill it. Just as we read in Matthew chapter 5, he said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. In Judaism, we learn that God's strict law and his kindness are tempered with his heart, which is his love. This intermediate sweetening quality at the center of God's attributes is called mercy, rachamim, or in the Christian term, it is called grace. One attribute requires the other, meaning we cannot experience God's love and mercy unless he strictly deals with our sinfulness. Just as we read in Isaiah chapter 53, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Therefore, we can associate Jesus Christ, Yeshua, as the soul and the heart of God revealed to humanity. And God's soul and heart are an emanation of his love for us. As we read in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For this reason, the righteous in Christ declares in Psalm chapter 40, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. God's law is perfect. As we read in Psalm 19, it says the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And God has promised to write his law on our hearts. As we read in Jeremiah chapter 31, he said, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And what is this law? I believe it is the divine attributes, the sefirot of God. In other words, God's will for us is that we become the perfect image of Christ. We have covered a lot of ground, explaining as best that I can how God's nature and his attributes, his sefirot, reveal God's perfect and revealed will in our lives. In summary, God's will is essentially his intelligence, which is his wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. And all of these he has made known to us through his written word. Going back to our first scenario where I mentioned wanting to buy a sports car, I'm not sure the Lord actually had an opinion about that. And the same could be said for what style and color of clothing that we wear or what should I eat for dinner tonight. God's will does not violate our freedom of choice. And I believe the Lord delights in us to experience the bounty and diversity of his creation. Your spouse, on the other hand, might have a different opinion about the sports car. I've also found that some Christians have a sort of crippling and on occasion misguided understanding of God's will for their life. Some have even said they believe God wants them to divorce their spouse because he has a better person for them. That statement violates God's law and covenant of marriage, adultery being the exception, of course, but it also defiles the holiness and sanctification he requires of us who are married, even to an unbelieving spouse. If we understand once again that God's will is predicated on his infinite knowledge, wisdom, and understanding of each circumstance in our lives, then following his will requires us to seek his understanding from Scripture and then submit to it. For this reason it is written in Proverbs chapter 3, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. 
This understanding is bound by God's written word, which is also his law. For example, we know that God created mankind in his image, male and female, he created us. When we violate God's knowledge concerning our sexuality, we end up outside of his will. And for this reason, Paul said in Romans chapter 1, that God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. God's will is that we keep ourselves pure and holy. As we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust. God's law reveals to us what is morally right and wrong. Paul said in Romans chapter 7, Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetedness unless the law had said, You shall not covet. There are 620 commandments in the Torah. This number in Gematria is the numerical value of the Hebrew word for crown, which is keter. Symbolically, a silver crown is placed on top of every Torah scroll, because in Judaism, the crown is one of the most important symbols of our connection with God. Just as we read in 2 Timothy chapter 4, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Since we know that Christ is the fulfillment of the Torah and the law, it is his crown of righteousness that is laid up for us now and imputed to us in heaven. God's law gives us the knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, which is the crown, the keter of his righteousness, so that we might follow what is truthful in our lives and turn away from ungodliness. And so we read in Psalm chapter 15, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Who may dwell in your holy hill? He who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. God's will is further revealed through the gospel of salvation. We read in 2 Peter chapter 3, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In John chapter 1, we read, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And yet we know that many will trust in their own wisdom and knowledge concerning salvation. As we read in Luke chapter 7, it says, But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. It is seemingly impossible for us to understand God's unbound and unknowable will, and he doesn't expect us to. The Lord only desires that we pursue him and his revealed will in our lives. As we read in Hosea chapter 6, let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, it says, I applied my heart to know, to search, and seek out wisdom and the reason of things. God's reason of things should include how he ordains our lives and orders our footsteps. It's not wrong to seek the Lord's counsel on any decision we face. I have asked the Lord for direction many times in my life, and I know that my Heavenly Father loves to guide his children. 
But I do not believe the Lord is holding us by some invisible strings, manipulating us for his selfish gain. We are given many choices, and our decisions, if made within God's revealed truth and boundaries of his written word, are for us to make. For example, who we should choose to marry, or how many children we should have. These are personal choice decisions given to mankind. And we are reminded that in Christ there is no condemnation, none. Yes, it is written in Psalm chapter 37, the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delights in his way. But ordered for what purpose? Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And in Mark chapter 3, Yeshua said, For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and mother. Yeshua was telling us that we are to do what is right in the Lord's eyes. We read in Proverbs chapter 21, To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And when we do what is right, we will always be in God's will. Just as we read in Genesis 17, the Lord said, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And in Micah chapter 6, he said, For he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Isaiah chapter 61, the Lord said, For I, the Lord, love justice. And in Psalm 97, he said, You who love the Lord hate evil. These are all the will of God. Yeshua said in Matthew chapter 5, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. This is the will of God. James chapter 1, we read, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. This is the will of God. And in fact, every day we walk with the Lord is an opportunity to demonstrate His good will to a world that does not know Him. And one day soon the Lord has promised that the whole earth will know Him and His will. This will be God's knowledge revealed through the indwelling presence of Christ in the earth. Just as we read in Isaiah chapter 11, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the kingdom of God shall be established in Israel and all the nations. Isaiah chapter two we read, and many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We, the church, are being perfected by the will of God. Day by day, he is conforming us to his image. As we read in Ephesians chapter four, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter two, we read, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So therefore we read in Ephesians chapter four, it says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I love the story in Genesis of how God formed Adam from the dust of the earth. God formed him with his two hands and 10 fingers. Here we see how God's hand and his 10 fingers, which are his 10 attributes, his sephirot, are now conforming us to the image of his son. 
This is the will of God. And so I pray, just as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Amen. If you have enjoyed this teaching from House of David Ministries, make sure you subscribe to our channel and don't forget to visit our website where you can sign up for our monthly newsletter. We pray the Lord richly bless you and we look forward to having you join us again for our next episode.